Hi, I'm Greg Lefebvre, and this is The Compulsive Storyteller, a collection of short, personal stories about real events from my life that I can't help telling over and over again. Many of these stories prove the old adage that life can be stranger than fiction. I've decided to make a podcast where with each episode, I retell one of the best of these stories with music and sound. My therapist thinks that maybe in this way, I'll be able to stop compulsively retelling my stories. Well, we'll see about that. This week's story is about what happens when you take on a big public sculpture commission. And the only sculpture you've ever built is a paltry 12 inches tall and made of styrofoam. My first public art disaster. When my wife Lisa and I finished up our five-year teaching careers in the South Bronx, she applied for law school at our undergraduate alma mater, Boston University. She was accepted, and so we moved back to Boston and back to our old, dilapidated mansion where we'd lived together as undergraduates. The brick building was in a neighborhood of tall, beautiful old trees and stately homes that had become an island in time as Brookline and Boston encroached on all sides. When 27 Lenox Street was built, the backyard apparently stretched all the way to the banks of the Charles River. We lived on the top floor inside the mansard roof attic, which had been the slaves' quarters before the Civil War. We both saved our money as teachers so that she could go back to school and I could pursue my lifelong dream of becoming a professional artist. I set up my first sculpture studio in one of our rooms and began to make plaster sculptures that I guess could best be described as minimal, biomorphic, and abstract. Working alone in my attic all day was a totally new kind of life for me, and with no technical training and not knowing any other artists in the Boston area, it was a real challenge. I found myself a little lost and lonely. One day I read a notice in the campus newspaper announcing a design competition for a new park to be constructed on campus. Reading in the request for proposals that anybody could enter, I decided to give it a shot and sent in my letter of interest, which included all my personal information. This was a perfect opportunity because now I had a purpose and a goal to work toward. Proposals and models were due in nine weeks, so I got to work immediately. My plan seemed simplistic and naive now, but back then, I thought the centerpiece of my park should be one of my sculptures. My park design was anything but brilliant. It consisted of a sidewalk around the perimeter edge of a square park, with walkways running on all four corners, converging in the center, essentially making an X within a box. There would be grass in the four triangles that were created, along with low bushes at the three points of each triangle. Laughably, I thought that I was a genius of minimalism. Mies van der Rohe, one of the best-known minimal architects of that time, once famously said, less is more. Now that myself and the rest of the world are no longer under the sway of the minimalist movement, it can be said that less is more to a point, and then less is less. This was the case with my park design. As I began my model, I scrapped the idea of using plaster right away because it required elaborate mold-making and my small reinforced models would be both heavy and fragile. 
Also, I learned in a book on contemporary outdoor sculpture that large-scale biomorphic forms are much more difficult and expensive to build because of all the compound surfaces involved. Minimal geometric forms that involve the geometry of flat surfaces were easier to make and less expensive. Hence, there was a spate of public artworks from that time that entailed simple, welded geometrical forms made from sheets of rolled steel. Noguchi's monumental orange cube, standing on one of its corners in Lower Manhattan, is a case in point. Calder's stabiles, with their flat painted cutouts joined to different angles, and Richard Serra's early arrangements of standing quartan steel sheets were all examples as well. The simplest and fastest technique that I learned to make models was to use a bandsaw to cut out shapes from the blocks of high-density styrofoam. After purchasing the saw and dragging it up to our third-floor quarters, I worked day and night making dozens and dozens of models. They were sitting all over our home like so many birds from Hitchcock's film of the same name from that period. I would fall in love with one maquette, usually just after making it, only to fall out of love the next day. My wife and the few new friends that I'd managed to make were all happy to pass judgment and pick their favorites. The problem was that nobody liked the same models, which led to one of my first and best lessons as an artist. Paying attention to what others have to say is a sure road to becoming lost yourself. Of course, not having gone to art school, I had no idea what a class crit session was or how helpful it might be. The days passed quickly, and more and more models accumulated. I had to make some preliminary choices and move the ones I didn't care for to the creepy abandoned cellar of our building. Its windows and outside trapdoor were broken, stray cats lived there, and many of my models nested there too, amidst the cast-offs and dusty debris from a century of college student residents. As the days sped by, I started to work at a more feverish pace. I was working under such self-imposed stress that my relationship with my wife began to suffer. She had her law school studies and exams to contend with, and so she backed away from anything having to do with what she called my art obsession. Meanwhile, I was also experimenting with different paint colors for the grass and sidewalks of my park model, and with different miniature bushes and glue-on natural textures that I purchased from charrettes in Harvard Square. Interestingly enough, a charrette is a type of wheelbarrow that was used in the late 1800s by French architects in Paris to move around their rolls and rolls of drawings and plans. Since that time, en charrette has come to mean the stressful period just before the deadline for finished architectural plans. I certainly understood that feeling only too well. As my deadline approached, my wife had almost stopped talking to me, and we were no longer cooking together. I ate junk food exclusively, and my personal hygiene went to hell. In the end, because time was so short, I had to make what seemed like almost arbitrary decisions about the final choice of the design of my proposed sculpture and the colors and textures involved in the park model as well. The final choice was a tripod, but the three opposing legs were thick at their base and curved and narrow as they reached the point where they joined together. The work had a spherical effect. Each leg looked like a little half of a yin-yang, a popular eastern design of that period. One of the interesting things about a tripod as a form is that it appears very differently from different vantage points, symmetrical when looked at in one way and asymmetrical and off-balance from another. I decided to paint my round little model a pinkish red. 
The night before the deadline, I had to pull an all-nighter. In the middle of the afternoon of the due day, after showering and changing my clothes, I picked up my model and headed out, anxious but also so exhausted I was a little slap-happy. As I walked along, I kept seeing myself as a waiter carrying a large square tray with an ornate red cake at its center. A tight little hysterical laugh squeaked out when I envisioned this. The only thing that I felt good about was that I could still laugh, kind of. The park competition was being administered by the vice president for campus affairs, whose offices were located in the Grand Beaux-Arts building on Bay State Road on the BU campus. I had to keep my model board horizontal, so I had some difficulty navigating the heavy wooden entryway doors. When I somewhat breathlessly entered the quiet sanctum inside, I found a young female receptionist sitting behind a large mahogany desk in a marble-clad reception area. She looked at me a little puzzled as I set one edge of my model on one corner of her desk. Hi, I said. I'm here to deliver my model for the competition. She responded, what competition? A little alarmed, I said, the park design competition. Oh, she said in a sing-song voice, we canceled that because there weren't enough entries. What? I said, now truly alarmed. My voice had gone up an octave and my volume had doubled as well. She continued, not so sing-song this time. We didn't have enough applicants. Now at full blast, I responded, are you shitting me? And my words echoed around the marble hallways of the building. I'm sorry, she said quietly. I'm sorry? I'm sorry? I mimicked her words, still speaking very loudly. I worked nine fucking weeks, day and night, and you're sorry? Why didn't someone contact me about the competition being canceled? You had my application. You had my information. What the fuck? As she meekly uttered a request that there was no need for such language, a tall, distinguished-looking middle-aged gentleman in a nicely tailored suit had emerged from the office down the hall and entered the reception area. What seems to be the problem here? He asked firmly, but in a measured tone. This turned out to be Dan Finn, the vice president for campus affairs. As I started to explain myself, two BU campus cops hurriedly entered the lobby from outside. Finn sent them away and then invited me to bring my model and join him in his office down the hall. Take a moment, he said, as he cleared a table for me to put my model on. Just relax. I sat for a few minutes while my breathing returned to normal. Let's forget about the competition for a minute, he said gently. Why don't you tell me about your model? I started by explaining that the sculpture, being a tripodal arch of sorts, was meant to concretely represent the university's role as a rite of passage from youth into the larger adult society. I pointed out that in many cultures, starting with primitive ones and leading up to classical Greco-Roman civilization and beyond, arches of all types had been used in ritual ceremonies of passage, but also their shape came to symbolize such passages as well. Then, Finn arose from his chair and squatted next to the table so he could view my model at eye level, as one should. From this position, he asked matter-of-factly, So how would you like to make this sculpture for a site between the new Mugar Memorial Library and the Student Union, both designed by José Luis Serre, head of Harvard's architecture school? There's a glassed-in passageway connecting the two buildings, and I think that your work would look great in a small courtyard behind the link, which can be seen looking through the glass from Commonwealth Avenue. It could be set there on a raised grassy square that is trimmed with granite curbing, which would work beautifully as a pedestal for your sculpture. Ah, uh, 
I stammered and thought to myself that the cognitive dissonance of this situation was almost too much for me to bear. I'd gone from the anxiety of finally delivering my model to the devastation of my hopes, along with the realization that the last nine weeks of my life had been a total waste of time. Then, on to my uncontrolled anger, which left me feeling completely drained, only to be presented with an offer that was far better than anything I could have hoped for. After my brain caught up with me, I uttered, That would be fantastic. Finn broke into a wide smile. So what were you thinking about size? Maybe 10, 12 feet tall? Sure. Sounds like a good height. Now I was smiling too, maybe for the first time in the last two months. And I think that the red you've chosen is a little too pink. How about using what we like to call BU Red? Check it out. It's on the school's logo and some of the outside paneling of Sayre's buildings as well. Finn had been incredibly adept at calmly diffusing a difficult situation and then acting decisively and unilaterally to come up with a solution. I learned later that during World War II, he was General MacArthur's fixer, the go-to guy who could get things done for the general. Maybe his time in Japan had also honed his aesthetic sensibilities. I walked home so light on my feet that I wanted to skip, but when I re-entered my makeshift studio and looked around at all my models, a chill ran down my spine. Now I had to actually transform my final model into a permanent monumental outdoor sculpture for a public space, when the largest sculpture I'd ever built was a paltry 12 inches tall and made out of styrofoam. Thus, my happy respite after our meeting had been very short-lived, and then the stress set in again. That night, though, my wife and I went out to celebrate. We went to see Babette's Feast, which seemed appropriate, and then afterwards to a new Nouvelle Cuisine restaurant. When my lobster stew came, it was just a big bowl of gnocchi with a skimpy, two-inch-long, boiled, BU-red crayfish on top. I complained to the waiter, saying that I had ordered a lobster, not crayfish, and he suggested that I dig a little deeper. When I did, I unearthed lots of hidden chunks of lobster. This was the first time I'd ever encountered a chef who used humor as an ingredient in his dishes. We had a good laugh at my expense, and I decided to spring for an expensive bottle of champagne to toast the success of both my first public art project and my wife's doing very well on her law school exams. And so began my career as a public artist. I didn't take a break, but started out very early the next morning. As I sat in my studio, I realized I didn't have a clue about how to proceed. I guessed that my first task was to figure out what material to use to construct my sculpture. Welded steel plate seemed the obvious choice, but after a couple of back and forths with Lippincott, the largest sculpture fabricator in the business, they quoted $90,000 to fabricate my model 12 feet tall. The deal that I worked out with Finn was that the university would pay for all my materials, lend equipment and workers to help move and install the piece, and give me $5,000. Looking back now, the deal seems laughable, but at the time, I factored in that executing my first public commission would probably lead to other projects. Lippincott's quote blew me out of the water, and even if I spent all my savings, I couldn't come close. An architect friend suggested ferro-concrete as a much cheaper alternative. He had built a sailboat hull using ferro-concrete. The material was developed during World War II to build cargo ship hulls. It consisted of a dozen layers of Australian chicken wire, tightly laced together with wire to make a flat surface. 
Then wet concrete was troweled on and vibrated into both sides of the chicken wire composite. Once the concrete had cured, a sandable epoxy fairing compound was applied and then sanded to a smooth final finish. Since it was springtime, I decided to work on my project Plein Air in the large grassy tree-lined side yard of our building. I could also keep my equipment and materials in the abandoned basement. To start with, I constructed the three curved legs of the tripod in plywood and masonite, then clad them with the necessary layers of chicken wire and applied the concrete. Very quickly, each leg became very heavy. I hung a large steel ring on one of the thickest branches of an elm tree in the side yard so that I could use a chain fall to hoist and turn the concrete legs, but this turned out to be way too unwieldy. Then I found a long wooden 4x4, and with the help of a wooden block fulcrum placed close to the leg, I could easily flip it over. It was magical. If the fulcrum was close enough to the pieces, each of which grew in weight to almost a ton, I could push down on the wooden lever with a single finger and flip over a ton of ferro-concrete. I guess Archimedes was right when he said, give me a place to stand and a lever long enough, and I will move the world. I also collected a pile of a dozen discarded mattresses that I could rotate and flip the pieces onto. Flip, apply concrete, let concrete dry, and flip again. Over time, I rolled each leg all around the yard on a road of mattresses. Within a month, I'd finished the concrete work on all three legs. The grass in the side yard was a total disaster, though. Mudville. I actually managed to give myself a good jolt when I was standing in the mud using my industrial-sized vibrator. Only rubber boots were worn on the site after that. Next, we started applying a coat of epoxy to the raw concrete sides. With practice, I got very proficient smoothing on the catalyzed epoxy with an extra-long straight-edge trowel. This surface I sanded smooth with a huge industrial-sized disc sander. Trouble, however, was never far away. As I worked away one day, a small delegation of men arrived from Cadillac Olds. Just through the side yard hedge and kitty corner from our mansion did the area's premier high-end car dealership. They suddenly found themselves having problems with dust in their enamel paint jobs. It took them a while to discover the source, but when they did, a little group of visitors arrived, which included someone from the EPA as well. They meant business and handed me a fully executed cease-and-desist order. Dan Finn then provided movers in a truck to move my whole operation to a storage facility on the BU campus. I was given a large, high-ceilinged, concrete-floored, well-lit studio on the second floor, accessed by an almost new, large and dependable freight elevator. Here I worked happily with my levers and fulcrums and mattresses and fairing compound until the sculpture was finished, with only two more major mishaps. The first involved a tall, dark-skinned African-American friend of mine who visited me after hours one evening to help out. Someone had seen him entering the building alone and called the cops. As we sanded, we were both wearing bandanas across our faces because we'd run out of paper dust masks. In the cavernous room, there was spotlights trained on the sculpture, but the remainder of the area was lost in shadow. At one point, just as we emerged from between the pieces of sculpture, four uniformed Boston policemen with their guns drawn, scared the hell out of both of us, screaming, freeze, get down on your knees, hands behind your heads, now. Dan Finn again saved the day with a call to the campus police who spoke to the Boston cops and it was all over. My friend wasn't as freaked out as I was, 
probably because he'd had a lifetime of such treatment. Like many aspects of the project, the installation did not go well. With crowds of students, staff, and administrators all watching, and three local news crews filming, the movers and myself couldn't get the upright legs to slide together on the steel fork plate that would join them. No matter how hard we tugged and pushed, they wouldn't budge. It was a great personal humiliation for me, and by late afternoon the courtyard was empty, except for the movers and myself. Then magically, with the use of a couple handfuls of cable grease, they slid together with a nice solid thud. And so, my first public art project was complete. My bright red sculpture has been sitting in place now for 43 years. I go back for a visit whenever I'm in Boston, where I completed a dozen other commissions since that time. On my last visit, I also went over to check up on the old mansion where we had lived when we were students. Sadly for me, BU had bought and demolished the building, and it was now a park. The lawns were long since repaired, and most of the trees were now full-grown. As I walked around the grass, I mused that not a shred of evidence remained of my first public art project. Then I looked up into the tallest elm tree, and sure enough, high above I could see the steel ring that had hung there so many years before, but it was now much further off the ground. Impulsive Storyteller is produced by Peter Kokoma and me, Greg Lefebvre. Our theme music was made by Peter Kokoma. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love your help sharing the show. Please subscribe to the Compulsive Storyteller on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts, and it would be great if you'd leave a review. Follow the show on Instagram at The Compulsive Storyteller and check out our website for more information at thecompulsivestoryteller.com. Thanks for listening. And if you didn't like this one, the next one will be another story.